Welcome to State of the Bay. This is Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night, we are live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we'll learn why state regulators have revoked the permits for Cruz's self-driving cars and what the implications are for the autonomous vehicle industry here in California. Then we'll hear from journalist and author Roseanne Shaw about her new book on sea level rise and California's vanishing coastline. And finally, we'll sit down with the founder of the Berkeley nonprofit Girls Garage. We are live and local. We're coming up after the news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. So this hour, we'll be talking with Rosanna Shaw, environmental reporter with the Los Angeles Times, about her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. And we'll also hear from the founder and executive director of Girls Garage, a nonprofit design and construction school for girls and gender expansive youth in Berkeley. But first, the latest in San Francisco's ongoing saga with autonomous vehicles. So last week, the California Department of Motor Vehicles suspended permits for the driverless taxis deployed by Cruise, which is a General Motors-owned autonomous vehicle startup. The DMV cited safety concerns after an early October incident in San Francisco, which resulted in severe injuries to a pedestrian. And last week, the company paused all driverless operations across the United States in an effort to, quote, rebuild public trust. Of course, these so-called robo-taxis were already controversial in San Francisco prior to this accident. So to help us make sense of how we got here and what's at stake for the autonomous vehicle industry, both here in San Francisco and in California, is Ricardo Cano, transportation reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ricardo. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So, Ricardo, tell us about the original incident that led to this suspension. What happened on October 2nd? Yeah. uh, So, um, you know, this happened uh, on the intersection of Fifth Street and Market Street in downtown San Francisco, uh, a block away from the Chronicle newsroom. And um, the, you know, uh, there was a cruise robo taxi that was heading southbound on Fifth Street um, that was adjacent to a sedan that was driven by a human motorist. And when the light turned green, both cars uh, advanced on the street and, you know, the sedan, you know, as they were heading down, down fifth street, you know, the sedan uh, struck a, a, a pedestrian who was crossing the street. Um, the car hit her uh, and flung her in the direction of the cruise robo taxi that was uh, lagging just a bit behind and the cruise robo taxi hit her as well. Um, and braked hard, and uh, that had been what had been uh, disclosed, or or that's what the DMV is claiming, you know, had been the the extent of what had been exclo- disclosed by Cruz, um, and and <clears throat> that night immediately. Uh, but what happened next is really what what is you know the the reason why the DMV took the extraordinary step to suspend Cruz's uh, deployment permit. So the DMV said that, you know, Cruz withheld footage um, showing that after the robo taxi stopped initially, uh, it proceeded to 
go it attempted to pull over drag dragging the woman uh who was stuck underneath the chassis 20 feet um and and pinning her um underneath the vehicle <clears throat> the dmv is you know the dmv gave two reasons specifically for its suspension of cruise operations uh in the state uh number one being that um that they're claiming that Cruz withheld that additional footage showing that it attempted to pull over. Uh, and number two being the actual maneuver itself. Um, the DMV argues that, you know, if the cruise robo taxi um, pulled over or tried to pull over after uh, striking the woman that, that, you know, <clears throat> perhaps didn't um, sense or, 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 you know, sense that, that, there was a pedestrian still underneath um, and that, you know, it raises safety concerns about whether the technology is, is able to uh, recognize pedestrians or interact with them. Yeah. Ricardo, this is just horrific to think about what happened here. And I'm curious if what Cruz is saying in response to this, are they denying that they withheld footage? Are they denying that this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't a driverless situation? Yeah, uh, that's what they said in their in their immediate statement that night um, when the when the uh, incident unfolded. You know, they 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 said in their statement that um, and and you know afterward that if the robo taxi was in the position of the human sedan driver, that the incident wouldn't have happened, and that um, the cruise robo taxi in that instance uh, acted better than what you know what one might expect of a human driver. Um, you know, it, uh, but uh, again, you know, when the incident happened, the night it happened, um, Cruz uh, showed video footage of, of captured by the robo taxi journalists who were covering the event as it unfolded. Um, and, you know, my colleagues who, who were shown the video in a 15 minute virtual meeting with company representatives that night, um, you know, the the footage stopped at the initial crash. It did not show the um the pullover maneuver that the DMV says happened afterward. Interesting. Well, Ricardo, can you give us a little more background on why San Francisco is one of the cities that is piloting autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I mean, this is really where um, Uber and Lyft got their start. This is where a lot, you know, it's a, it's it's really the the capital. Of, of of tech right and but it it's also you know a very unique uh challenging environment for human and robot drivers alike and so you know the companies that are vying to uh test deploy commercialize and eventually profit from this uh self-driving robo taxis um you know they want wanted to you know one of the reasons they want to you know, they, they, they're using San Francisco as a testing ground is because, um, it is, you know, one of the most difficult places to, to drive. And, and if it can be proved that the technology works here, then, um, you know, the, the conventional thinking is that it can work in, in other large, uh, metro areas where, um, the companies want to eventually, uh, expand and deploy their technology. 
And we're speaking with Ricardo Cano, transportation reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, about the recent suspension of cruise autonomous vehicles in San Francisco. And Ricardo, this isn't the first time that cruise has been investigated. The California Public Utilities Commission approved expansions for cruise and Alphabet-owned Waymo, another self-driving car company, back in August. But a few weeks later, DMV asked Cruz to cut its vehicle fleet total in half. We know federal investigators are also looking into Cruz. Can you talk about what's going on both at the state level and at the federal level? Yeah. So, I mean, um, this this really has been um, uh, uh, something that city officials have raised concerns about um, since last year uh, or earlier. But really, um, you know, this, you know, late last year when when the companies started um exponentially increasing their driverless activity in the city um and and you know what what we've heard from city officials for months now is that um you know their their sense is that the technology is not uh has not proven yet to um you know operate safely that there's still concerns about um incidents where uh, uh, robo taxis interfere with first responders or transit or traffic. Um, you know, the companies say that, that their technology is safe because it follows the speed limit. It, you know, it, it drives in an overly cautious way in ways that, that human drivers, uh, you know, can't, or, or human drivers don't often drive. Uh, but you know, what we've heard from city officials say as well is that, you know, the, the robo taxis, may drive in a way that causes, you know, additional problems. Um, and so right now, uh, you know, the, fe- the future is really up in the air for Cruz. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is a major setback for the company. Um, you know, this is happening at a time when Cruz was really, you know, aiming to to expand exponentially. Uh, you know, they were operating in Houston, uh, Austin, um, but also wanted to deploy and we're preparing to deploy their technology in Seattle, Nashville, um, elsewhere. Well, Ricardo, so. on that point, what do you think is next for the company then? Do you think we're going to see their vehicles back on the streets in San Francisco? What's the future going to look like for for Cruise? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. And I think that um, there's a lot of, um, you know, levers that we still need to see how they, you know, how they, how it unfolds. Um, Cruise can... Uh, apply to get its permits reinstated within DMV. Um, you know, but there's also uh, still an, an active effort from city officials who, you know, want to pump the brakes a bit on the expansion of robo taxis. Um, you know, San Francisco. No, no attended, applied of course. For, right. <laughs> uh, San Francisco applied for, you know, a rehearing with the California public utilities commission. It's, uh, you know, there's the DMV, which regulates um, the safety aspects of robo taxis, but then there's also the CPUC, which regulates, you know, co- commercial taxi service in the state. And so, um, the San Francisco has applied for a rehearing, um, and we're still waiting to see if the CPUC is going to grant the city um, a rehearing from the August 10th decision that allowed both Cruise and Waymo to operate commercially. Uh, with no restrictions in the city. Um, and so um, it's it's a lot of wait and see right now in terms of, of what's going to happen with Cruise. 
And Ricardo, you've reported on Phoenix's experiences with AV deployment, which seem pretty different from what we're experiencing in San Francisco. So why has AV deployment been, it seems, more controversial in San Francisco? I think part of it, a lot of it goes back to just the 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 challenges. This is a very chaotic environment um, in San Francisco. You have pedestrians, cyclists, construction, narrow streets, just a lot more factors to be considered compared to a place like like Phoenix, which resembles, you know, more you know, like the rest of the country, which is car centric, mm-hmm. wide arterials, um, you know, where the cities are designed to facilitate the movement of cars. And so it's it's, you know, you're not gonna interact, you know, the robo taxis aren't going to interact with pedestrians or or people the the same way that that you know you might see in san francisco that that has one thing to do with it and and you know um in phoenix it's it's largely waymo's um robo taxis that are deploying there in the metro area and Mm -hmm. and one of the things you know that's that that we don't really know you know the extent of is is how much more sophisticated is uh, Waymo's technology compared to Cruise, is there a disparity? Um, we don't really have the data to mm-hmm. say, you know, yes or no, but um, it, peer, it appears anecdotally, anecdotally at least, that, um, you know, a lot of the attention, the negative headlines, um, you know, incidents that have drawn the ire of, of some residents and city officials have been, uh, you know, by Cruise. And so... Yeah. Um, so, Ricardo, last question, because we're just about out of time. I want to ask about the context for this AV incident. And, you know, it's striking to me that we become numb to how much driver-induced accidents happen. And even in this incident, you've got a, essentially a hit and run. You've got a human driver who caused the initial accident. Are we being unfair to autonomous vehicles? Is there a safety record on balance based on what you've reported actually better than what humans have been able to to, to pull off? Because we know the carnage that humans leave on our roads. Yeah, that's a very fair question, Ethan. And um, if you talk to uh, folks who are very supportive of this technology, um, you, you know, you'll hear a similar sentiment that, um, you know, robo taxis are being held to this double standard where, um, you know, in San Francisco, there's there's a, an epidemic of, of uh, severe and fatal crashes in the city. Um, and that, you know, all of that stems from human driving. Um, but, you know, while there's certainly support in you know from some folks who who are using the service regularly uh you know Waymo logged 65,000 trips uh you know from June to August so people are using the service um but you know as far as as you know whether um there there is that double standard you know again Ethan uh this is uh, a new technology it's an emerging technology there are ambitions within this industry to uh, you know, become mainstream, um, and, and it could prove to be a, a lucrative industry worth trillions of dollars. But you know, in order to get there, and I think you know, um, some of the um, uh, AV company officials that I've spoken with, you know, acknowledge that that you know it does require uh, public trust, public acceptance mm-hmm. um, to become comfortable with with the technology. And I think mm-hmm. that you know, this incident. Um, calls that into question uh, whether Absolutely. whether it's fair or not.
Absolutely. Well, Ricardo Cano, transportation reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you for covering this story and for joining us on State of the Bay. Thank you, Ethan. Coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to journalist and author Rosanna Shaw about her new book on sea level rise in California. That's right after this short break. KALW learned last week that the San Francisco Chronicle is ending production of the program Fifth and Mission. It's part of journalism cutbacks across the Bay, and specifically at the Chronicle, which is ending its audio programming. We've appreciated partnering with the Chronicle to help bring you in-depth reporting about the Bay Area, enhancing what we provide from our own team. We're working to identify a replacement for Fifth and Mission, and we're committed to creating and curating the best public media by the Bay and for the Bay. Stay tuned. San Francisco public school students need you. If you're available to work one day a week and have a four-year degree, you can be a substitute teacher for a kindergarten through 12th grade classroom. Check out requirements and details at sfusd.edu forward slash substitutes. That's sfusd.edu forward slash substitutes. Don't wait. Apply today. Got questions? Email subhiring at sfusd.edu. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. In her new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, Los Angeles Times environmental reporter and Pulitzer Prize finalist Rosanna Shaw travels California's 1,200-mile coastline to explore the challenges posed by climate change and rising sea levels. Now, scientists project that the seas may rise as much as seven feet by the end of this century, And coastal communities, industry, infrastructure, ecosystems are all at risk. Shaw's book describes how many of the strategies used to manage these impacts, though, have come with unintended consequences to both the coast and to its residents. But through in-depth reporting and storytelling, Shaw shares how state residents are learning new and innovative ways to evolve with the Pacific Ocean and its changing shoreline. And she challenges readers and policymakers to redefine our relationship with the sea. Shaw writes, change is the only way California will learn how to live with, not on, this beautiful vanishing coastline that so many people settled and still wish to call home. Welcome, Rosanna Shaw, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Ethan. It's good to be here. And we also want you, our listeners, to be part of this conversation. Is sea level rise impacting your community? If so, how? And what would you like to see the state do to help preserve our changing coastline? You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on X at State of Bay. And we're on Instagram at State of Bay and Facebook as well at State of Bay. So we would love to hear you from multiple different media. So, Rosanna, you've traveled up and down California's coast for your reporting. I would assume mostly for the Los Angeles Times, but as well uh, to work on this book. I wanted to hear what are some of the ways that sea level rise has begun to impact the state that's really jumped out at you based on your reporting? Yeah, I mean, so often I still find that people think about sea level rise as this abstract disaster that's way far off into the future. It doesn't feel as urgent as like wildfires or drought or, you know, all these other climate change issues that really feel more front of mind in California. But 
I mean, if you just look at the coast, so many of our beaches are already shrinking. Our cliffs are collapsing. We have so many communities built on former wetlands that are now you know, facing increasing flooding with water trying to move back into where it was before. And, and I mean, every winter, especially this past winter, it, it's not uncommon to see homes like teetering on the very edges of a crumbling bluff or high swells and big waves breaking completely over seawalls and just shutting down the coastal highway. I mean, I, I hear the words like slow moving disaster a lot. This is a term that comes up a lot in the sea level rise kind of planning world. And, you know, sea level rise might feel less urgent. You can't stand on the beach for one afternoon and really feel this looming disaster. But all the things that can cause flooding truly adds up. And they've been adding up more and more frequently with increasing intensity because of sea level rise and climate change and just all of the forces of nature that are coalescing. And Rosanna, one of the things that you write about in the book that I found surprising was that even though other regions have been grappling with the destructive impacts of rising sea levels, the West Coast apparently has been spared for a number of decades from the worst of the impacts that other parts of the globe have been seeing. Can you talk about why that is and what's changing now? Yeah, that blip in history was fascinating for me to discover. So I think in California, most of us have heard the term El Nino and La Nina and this kind of climate cycle that ebbs and flows. But another cycle kind of similar in that space is just, it's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And, you know, essentially, California, our population boom, the way we developed in the post-World War II era, that really took off at a time when we were in a quote-unquote quiet phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And what does that mean? It basically means that you know, warm water expands, cold water takes up less space. And during the quiet phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which we call the PDO, the the way the winds blow, they kind of pull the warmer water offshore. And so kind of the colder, less expansive water is along our coastline. And so we built in the 50s and 60s, all of a lot of the infrastructure in the world as we know it today along the coast, we built right up to the edge, but that edge between land and ocean was way further out than, you know, what is natural and what we're experiencing today. So in the last century overall, I mean, the sea rose along the California coast, maybe eight, nine inches. And now, like you said, what we're facing at the end of the century, if we continue business as usual, is six or seven feet of sea level rise. But yes, again, you know, we... We tend to fix lines in the sand along a coastline that it's inherently meant to shift and to move. And on top of that, during the you know quiet phase of the PDO, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, we built right up to an edge that was even further out than what we're dealing with today. And that rude awakening is starting to happen now. So a lot of this might feel pretty abstract to listeners, especially when we're talking about you know end of the century, sea level rise. I certainly hope to live a long life, but you know I'm, I'm not going to make it <laughs> to the end of the century. And I'm sure many listeners as well, unfortunately. But we have obviously near-term risks as well. And just even thinking about one foot of sea level rise might feel abstract. Can you just give us a, a mental picture of, of what even one foot of sea level rise might mean and how soon even something like that might happen to our coastline. Yes. And thank you for asking that question in that way. And, you know, just to answer that 
directly. And then I have a couple of thoughts on that. You know, one foot of sea level rise, what does that look like? I asked a number of folks. I mean, it's going to be different in different places, depending on the topography and the geology and the way we built the shoreline. But in general, you can say one foot of sea level rise means about 100 feet to 300 feet of migration inland. And, you know, I love the way you asked that question, because when I first started writing about sea level rise, we were talking mostly like end of century projections, you know, six to seven feet of sea level rise by end of century. There was a big USGS study that came out a couple of years ago that really shook even and changed the way I thought about it. But basically we're looking at more than two thirds of our beaches in Southern California completely drowned like underwater by end of century. And, you know, studies have shown that we are facing more than 370 billion dollars in property damage um, from coastal flooding by 2100. And the other kind of startling number is just wetlands as an entire ecosystem along the West Coast could go extinct completely as an ecosystem from sea level rise by end of century. But again, like all of these numbers feel so abstract and so far off. And so the there's been this increased effort within the science community and also the policy and planning community on how do we move this like long-term thinking and this long-term detachment to this issue into more of the short-term and the midterm. And so a couple, uh, two, two-ish years ago, the state of California, almost all our state agencies that have kind of a say and a role and a responsibility to help prepare our communities and our infrastructure for sea level rise, um, they agreed that we're going to plan and prepare as much as possible for three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050. That is less than 30 years from now. Three and a half feet might feel really extreme for some folks, but, you know, taking it one step further back to that one foot, right? And so looking at not just what the line will look like and what the flooding will look like in 25, 30 years in 2050. But like, what, what about frequency? Well, what about all these compounding factors that will also contribute to flooding? That's the next level shift in the way we're talking about this issue. So just think about this past winter. We have a king tide. We have, you know, a storm swell, a high wave event. We have rain, water coming from a different direction. We have rivers that are at capacity and swelling and trying to flush into the ocean that is also rising and pushing inland. We have groundwater coming up from beneath our feet that's also rising. I mean, all of these factors, and scientists call this compounding factors, that all, we are all at capacity and so close to this threshold that anything over it, anything, it's, I don't want to use the term perfect storm, but just this amount, all these different factors of water, you know, it's a confluence that is really just, you know, even one foot of sea level rise, even a high tide can take us over that threshold. So again, kind of thinking about too, like we don't have to wait until 2050. We don't have to wait for three and a half feet of sea level rise. We are, are already experiencing what it feels like to have flooding increasingly, you know, really hit home and really affect the roads that we rely on. And yeah, I think you know, ultimately this idea of frequency, do we really have to wait for three and a half feet of sea level rise for something to be considered underwater? If a road is flooded every month, every high tide, you know, a couple times a year, at what point do we have to start considering that piece of infrastructure or property as essentially underwater? It's almost a, 
overwhelming task to even think about how we grapple with this. I want to let listeners know this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing sea level rise in California with Rosanna Shaw, Los Angeles Times environmental reporter and author of the new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. And we'd love to hear from you as well. What are your thoughts about what policymakers should do in response to sea level rise? Do you have questions or comments for Rosanna? We'd love to hear from you. You can join the conversation by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. And we have an email in from John in San Mateo, who asks, what advice do you have for the community leaders who need to start facilitating these conversations? Is there language they should or should not be using when beginning these discussions? And I guess this question reminds me, Rosanna, of just in general, what are we seeing from local leaders and from state leaders as well? But maybe specifically to, to John's question, what are your thoughts about how community leaders should should begin this discussion? Yeah, that's a great question from John. And I, you know, I, as a writer, I am often thinking about the words that we use to talk about climate change. And there are a couple pretty fraught terms and just, but stepping way back, I think the, the patterns that I started to notice in all these communities that are truly trying to begin to have this conversation and, you know, truly there are communities and folks who are resistant to even starting this conversation of planning for sea level rise because they are afraid of where this conversation will go. They are afraid of the sacrifices that will be made, that will have to be made and what that means for kind of our short-term needs and values and interests. And so kind of how do you open this conversation? I found that in communities that have done it better, they start with the community in identifying the problem rather than having like a consultant or the mayor of the town or the city council drop this big kind of report that says all these places are going to be underwater at some point. These are the places at risk. These are the things, things, things that we need to do, you know, rather than release the problem and then provide the solution in these like very dense technical reports. What does it mean to discover the problem together with the community? What does it mean to have that conversation, not feel like a bunch of people crunched a bunch of numbers in a back room and then came out and told you, you know, all these things that you love and hold dear are at risk. And what does that mean for the future? So I think that the community problem identifying process has been interesting in terms of really bringing the community along in the journey at a, at a point in this process that feels sooner than where some other communities have started. And I think the other kind of framing is really opening the conversation, not with what is under threat and what the disaster is, but what it is that we want for the future. You know, someone once told me that so often when we talk about sea level rise and climate change and what's at risk and what's under threat, we talk about, we, we, we focus so much on what we're going to lose and not what we could do going into the future, what we could still have, what we could build, what we could totally reimagine if only we were having a conversation that truly centered on what is it that the community wants like 20, 30 years from now? Well, mm-hmm. Can planning for the future be an opportunity to reexamine what's not working in our community today? And let's let's take that opportunity to start building towards that different future. Mm-hmm. So yeah, identifying the problem together as a community, starting the conversation on what 
you want and what you value and what you want your community to look, to look like at some point in the future could lead to a different form of the same conversation. But ultimately, it's the framing and again, empowering folks to also feel like they are part of the process of discovering and identifying the problem and finding the solutions together. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the nice things about your book is how you profile uh, different people who are involved in, in these exact discussions. And your ad- advice here reminds me of a quote that you cite from Peter Douglas, who really wrote the California Coastal Act and ran the California Coastal Commission for many decades, uh, the late Peter Douglas. But he talked about how the California coastline doesn't it's not something what we have saved. It's something that you have to kind of continuously save. I'm not getting that mm-hmm. perfect, but, uh, but I thought it was a, a very uh, apt quote. And I, I, another thing that I enjoyed about your book is that you profile specific communities up and down the coast. And since we're state of the Bay, I want to talk about some of the, the Bay communities that you talk about, uh, starting with, of course, San Francisco. Talk about San Francisco seawall and the challenge of having a seawall that needs some major upgrades. So my question for you is, is a seawall even worth it at this point when we've got rising sea levels? Should San Francisco be rethinking uh, the city's approach to sea level rise? I mean, that is the multi-billion dollar question. And I mean, let's just start. I mean, one of the like truly mind expanding things for me, just in the process of learning about our coastline, exploring also the inner San Francisco Bay shoreline, is learning about all the ways we have basically altered the the title of the coast, basically, the, this, this dynamic space between land and ocean, or like what we want to call land. And, you know, San Francisco, so much of the city used to be a marsh, for example, but we drained it, filled it up with rubble and built on top of it. And the Embarcadero, I mean, I think it's more common knowledge today, but a couple of years ago, you talk to someone, on, pull someone on the street and ask them, you know, they'd be surprised to hear that the Embarcadero is essentially a gigantic seawall holding back the bay and holding back basically this filled in marshland that we have built the financial district on top of that we've built a lot of San Francisco. And you know, the water is now trying to move back into these former marsh spaces. You know, marshes are, and wetlands are meant to be sometimes underwater and sometimes above water. And the reality truly is that we took land from the water and that water now wants to go back to where it used to be. Um, yeah, I mean, with Embarcadero, it's it's a really old piece of infrastructure. It's hitting kind of at the end of its life cycle. There have been these really compelling and fascinating kind of step-by-step efforts to figure out what it means to make this wall more resilient, what it means to really think about the limitations of this wall. I mean, back in, it was late 2018, there was a measure that basically led to voters agreeing to $425 million to lay the foundation for a bigger seawall. But, you know, the total cost of what it means to really bring Embarcadero into the future and whether or not it's even worth it is an ongoing conversation. But, you know, just to start, like this is a aging piece of infrastructure that is three miles long, holding back the bay, holding back the bay for a city that was largely built on top of a marsh. And what does that future look like? And I think the cost question is truly difficult, you know, in addition to the monetary costs, I mean, the ecological costs are something that, you know, don't have kind of when you do an economic cost benefit analysis, like what value do you place on like loss of biodiversity? What value do you place on like the loss of a wetland system that, you know, wetlands are incredible 
form like systems that capture carbon actually. And, you know, they filter a lot of like water and they produce oxygen. And, you know, we talk so much about tropical forests and the Amazon being the lungs of our planet, but wetlands too play such a critical role in these cycles. And in California, we have destroyed or altered more than 90% of our wetlands. So again, you know, for me, the cost is fascinating. It's in the billions of dollars. Who's going to pay for it? Are we willing to wall off the largest ocean on this entire planet? And, you know, ultimately, what are the things we're willing to sacrifice? Because I don't think anyone is saying we need to let go of San Francisco. But, you know, what are the costs that come with that? And how do we reconcile those costs, both economic and, you know, beyond the actual monetary sacrifices that we're making. And Rosanna, you also cover Pacifica. And what I thought was really striking about that story was just the resistance from homeowners to having any discussion around, you know, what's called managed retreat, which I gather has become uh, bad words in a lot of coastal communities. Can you talk about how we're going to solve this problem if you have a lot of well-resourced, in some cases, property owners who really don't want to have this discussion and would much rather see investment in things like seawalls than you know more nature-based solutions or ultimately some kind of slow retreat from the coast. Yes. And going back to uh, John's question from San Mateo, I mean, do not use the words manage retreat. That term <laughs> means a serious rebrand just based on all the conversations I've had and all the very like hours long community meetings I've sat through. And I mean, retreat sounds like surrender. We, you know, yeah. in kind of our, our collective American conscience, we don't like the idea of retreating. But manage retreat essentially means you're acknowledging that the ocean is rising and moving inland, that the coastline is inherently meant to move with that rising ocean and that we are meant to move with the ocean. And managed retreat still feels like this very intense, like one-time action that is going to call for a lot of sacrifice. But managed retreat is actually a process, a process of systematically, holistically, intentionally thinking about how to move a community or infrastructure or a set of homes you know, out of harm's way before it's in the way of the ocean. And how do you do that in a way that feels fair? And how do you feel, how do you do that in a way that, you know, helps people continue to feel whole after the process? And again, this idea of a process versus a one-time action that just feels so insurmountable. And so within Pacifica, I mean, Pacifica gets hit pretty hard, you know, by the ocean and also by news coverage, because it, <laughs> it is like the place where you feel every time there's a big storm or, you know, waves crashing onto the cliffs that used to be buffered by sandy beaches. And now the beaches are all gone and you see the house just like teetering on the edge of the cliff. I mean, Pacifica is truly, you know, I was talking to the former mayor of Pacifica a couple of years ago. He's saying this is a window into what every coastal community will experience with in greater intensity in the coming years. And with Pacifica, I mean, you know, similar to my answer to what I just shared with, you know, John from San Mateo, like, you can either come into a community and be like, why are you res why are you in denial of sea level rise? Why are you resistant to the ocean? Or can you open this conversation in a way that not only is meeting a person, you know, putting yourself in their shoes, but putting yourself in their vulnerability? So oftentimes when I open a conversation with a resistant property owner, for example, the question is like, what are you worried about? Why, why, why are you like, truly unpacking the emotions of like, why someone might feel resistant to change and why change might feel insurmountable. And ultimately, I mean, it's easy to vilify or to feel less empathy for someone who owns 
a mega million dollar mansion in Malibu. But what about, you know, the homeowner who spent her whole life saving up money to buy the ugliest Mm -hmm. house on the prettiest street in town only to move in and find out shortly afterwards that this whole neighborhood might actually be part of this grander plan to eventually relocate from the ocean. What what does that mean for her mortgage? What does that mean for insurance? And like, these are all valid questions and valid anxieties. And unless we actually meet the person there at like, you know, validate the feelings and start that conversation there. I just, I don't think we can move forward on this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just got kind of got a little philosophical, but yes, it's, it's hard. <laughs> no, These questions it. are truly trying to shift us from the short, short term into the long term. And again, just recognizing that this is a process, not a one time action is truly one way to shift the way we think about this issue. Well, and I'd love to cover more stories in the book because it's not just Pacifica. You cover the former salt flats in the Bay, which many people, I'm sure, have spotted either from bridges or from the air, the different multicolored uh, salt ponds in the South Bay. You also cover Marin City, so a, a lot of stories. But we only have a few minutes left, so I wanted to ask you about some next steps here. What what needs to happen? How should state and local policymakers be grappling with this problem that's just going to be getting worse? Yeah, I mean, you know, step one really is to talk about it. And I know that sounds kind of woo-woo, but like the number of people who are still resistant to even starting this conversation in a meaningful way is so notable to me just wherever I go along the coast. Because again, people are afraid of where that conversation will lead us. And, And truly, you know, this issue is complicated. It's not easy. There are no political wins. I mean, building a seawall in the short term to fend off the ocean, to defend a road or a home feels like an easier political win. But we are so trapped in thinking about these kind of arbitrary timeframes, right? Two-year, four-year political cycles, 30-year mortgages. And in the grand scheme of things, like we need to be thinking truly about what it means to move into the future and again, to start this process. And so, you know, we are running out of time, but we still have time right now to start these conversations, to really think about how to help guide communities into identifying not only the problem, but kind of what the solution is and what it is that we want for the future of our coast and to to work collectively to think more intentionally about what it is that we're building towards. And so, yeah, I I guess I'm just going to kind of end it there. Like, you know, more than anything, let's, let's talk about it. This is something that I think it feels less scary than building a $400 million wall or the foundation to a $400 million wall. But I I truly think having folks recognize that everyone has a stake in this issue, everyone belongs at the table to this issue, and that the more we talk about it, the more we'll actually be able to find a way forward that feels fair and whole for everyone. Well, there certainly are examples of some hopeful steps and hopeful actions. And maybe I can conclude by asking uh, a question from a listener here who emails Marlene in, in San Francisco who asks, what insights do indigenous people have about sea level rise? And it, it jumped out at me in the book, just how much you talk to tribal leaders and make references to tribal history and tribes who managed land on the coastline for thousands of years. Just briefly, what kinds of lessons, we only have a minute or two left here, were you able to draw from those stories from uh, indigenous leaders? 
Yeah, Marlene, thank you for that question. And I just, I think it's really powerful to think about indigenous, indigenous knowledge as a, um, as a form of expertise that should be equally valued as Western science and the way we kind of have been navigating these issues. And I have so many thoughts. The one that just popped into my mind is the term kuyam, which is the Tongva word for guest and Charles Sepulveda, who is a Hashimam and Tomba and a professor at university at the University of Utah introduced this idea, um, Kuyam, being a guest on the land. And what does it mean to think of yourself as a guest of this world, of on this planet, on the land, rather than someone who can conquer or own property or own the land or own the coastline? And you know, mm-hmm. just really just it's a small shift, but like, you know, if you're a guest in someone's home, you're not raiding the fridge and eating everything immediately. You are not rearranging the furniture and completely upending kind of someone's home. And, you know, just something as simple as thinking about ourselves as guests on this coastline and on this land and, you know, how we relate to the ocean could be a really powerful and different way of thinking about, you know, what it is that we're actually fighting and how to shift, again, that perspective and mindset in a way that truly acknowledges the realities of what it means to live along kind of, you know, again, a dynamic space between land and ocean. Very well said and really strikes that balance between philosophical and, and very much practical, given the impacts we're starting to face from sea level rise. So we just really scratched the surface here of this really <laughs> enjoyable book. But I just want to thank you for joining us, Rosanna Shaw, environmental reporter for the Los Angeles Times and author of the new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ethan. Great questions. Thank you. And coming up after the break, we'll hear about an East Bay nonprofit working to change the face of construction. So stay tuned after this short break. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. The Pulitzer Prize for memoir this year went to Stay True, a book that's very Bay Area. When I started writing it, I didn't know that it would be a book. And so when I published the book, I didn't then think it would win stuff. We talk to the award-winning author Hua Xu tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. To State of the Bay, this is Ethan Elkind. Did you know that only 22% of our STEM workforce is female and that less than 11% of construction workers are women? Our next guest is Emily Pilliton-Lamb, the founder and executive director of Girls Garage in Berkeley. And 10 years ago, she set out to change those statistics. Girls Garage is a nonprofit design and construction school for girls and gender expansive youth between the ages of 9 and 18. The organization provides free and low-cost programming in multiple disciplines, including carpentry, welding, architecture, and engineering. The girls and gender nonconforming youth work with nonprofits to produce a variety of projects such as mobile chicken coops, outdoor furniture, and even bus stops. Emily, thank you so much for joining me on State of the Bay. Having me. So, Emily, let's talk about Girls Garage. You founded it in 2013. Can you talk about why? What need were you trying to meet with this new nonprofit at that time? Sure. And, you know, thank you so much for that thorough intro. I feel like you uh, took all my talking points. Uh, But no, so Girls Garage, it really is sort of a personal story and a labor of love for me. I founded it in um, 2013. 
My background uh, is in architecture and construction management. And to make a long story very short, I wanted to create a space after having worked in these industries that was not just accepting of a, di a diverse workforce and not just accepting of women, but really, really valuing how much women have to bring to the construction site, to um, construction management, to the idea of building the world we all want to see. And so this started really as an experiment. I ran it as a, a, a two-week summer camp um, in 2013, and I literally went around to the middle schools and elementary schools and put up posters and just said, building camp for girls. And the camp sold out in a matter of days. And it was this really incredible surprise and validation that I was I was not alone um, as a young woman in wanting to build things and wanting to have a physical role in the authorship of my world. And also it really reminded me that this narrative we have about girls not being interested in STEM or not being interested in hands-on work is just absolutely false. Um, and so that was the very beginning. And ever since then, we've just grown year after year after year uh, to the point where you know we're in our 10th year we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year um, we have a physical workshop in west berkeley it's 5,000 square feet and we welcome hundreds of girls and gender expansive youth starting at age nine and together we get to build really incredible transformative community projects in in a space that feels safe and exciting um, and fun and joyful and so, Emily, what are some of the favorite projects that you've been able to build with the youths at uh, at Girls Garage? Oh, there's so many. Um, I forget the exact number, but I think in the past 10 years, we've built something around 180 projects for the community. But some of the most ambitious and um, my favorites are the ones that have been in partnership with other nonprofit organizations, um, organizations like Urban Tilth in North Richmond, um, like Growing Leaders, which is this really awesome um, gardening and entrepreneurship program based out of Willard Middle School in Berkeley, um, or Shelterwood Collective up in Casadero. That's a BIPOC run land stewardship organization. We've built ch chicken coops, um, saunas, public bus stops, lots of uh, food justice projects. And I think my favorite projects are the ones that are like physically large enough in scale where our students understand just how ambitious they are and that these are things that we could only have built together that no one person can raise the roof on a greenhouse and that building something together not just as a group of students but with and for our community those are really my favorite projects and they're still standing in our community today and these students get to drive by them and point them out to their family and friends and and say i built that and i built that thing in my community with love with an, with a group of other of other youth. Well, that must be so satisfying, especially given that so much of the keyboard economy is based on ephemeral digital contributions to the world, but to actually leave something physical in place. And I understand there's also a strong social justice element to the organization. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there is, and it's sort of an unexpected narrative that um, most people don't think of construction as a necessarily social justice minded industry. But I sort of think that we should and that it can be. And asking the question, who gets to build the world? How are we building it, both in terms of material and also processes? Um, and you know, what are we building and for whom are we building it? These are all questions that the construction industry should be asking. And so at Girls Garage, uh, social justice is really 
woven into everything we do, whether it's building a project for another organization that is explicitly committed to social justice, um, or also we we do activist art as well, which is not of an overt construction trade skill, but we do screen printing and we do risograph printing and we invite students to use art as a tool in the same way that they might use a chop saw or a drill or a driver to express their voice and to express hopes and fears of, about what's going on in the world. And so I think that when we consider the act of building as also an act of social justice, sometimes an act of protest, um, sometimes an act of, of community building, that it really changes the way in which we think about the potential of what building can do, not just in our immediate communities, mm -hmm. but as an industry and in the, in the greater world. Mm -hmm. Well, Emily, you said you started this in 2013. So I'm curious, what have you heard from participants after they've completed their work at Girls Garage? Uh, what have you, what are some of the alumni stories that you've, that you've heard over these years? Oh, so many good ones. And, you know, we kind of joke that when students graduate out of our program, we we joke that we can't get rid of them. We we end up hiring so many of our alumna because they have such incredible skills and they keep coming back as instructors or interns. Uh, but we have a lot of students that go into the fields of architecture, engineering. Um, go, they go directly into the trades. Um, there are students, I should also mention, you know, most of our students stay with us for five, six, seven 10 years, we have students that literally came to us when they were nine years old and are now in college and stayed with us the entire time. So we don't we don't ever push students into a specific path. Um, we really feel like students choose their own path. And no matter what that is, the things they learn at Girls Garage will will transfer. Um, but lots of students going into civil engineering, into the trades, and they're going into these fields with a very different attitude around what kind of treatment they deserve and also what they're capable of. I think they're going into it with the mindset of change and of empowerment. Um, we have one student uh, who was one of our first students who is at San Jose State. Her name's Erica. She's studying um, civil engineering and, and is already working in construction management. We have other students in architecture programs, students um, at community colleges getting certifications in welding and carpentry and it's just amazing getting texts from students, you know, alumna years after just with random updates yeah. of like, guess what I worked on today. Um, so we're yeah. just really proud of our whole alumna community. No, it just sounds great. And we only have a, a minute left here just for listeners who want to get involved, want to learn more. What can they do? Oh, well, I mean, I think the immediate thing that comes to mind is we have really high material costs. So we, we love, um, receiving donations to help us buy the actual materials to build these projects because those projects are are pro bono for our nonprofit partners. Um, but also signing up for our newsletter. We have a big event coming up in December where we're reopening our renovated space. And then just reaching out, you know, if you are a woman or um, or you work in any of these industries and you want to connect as, as a mentor um, to come see the space, we want to make the world as big as possible and as connected as possible for our students. So uh, we yeah. would love to meet you and, and talk with you. All right. We'll put uh, the website up on our webpage, Emily Pilliton Lamb. Looking forward to hearing more from you and your organization. Thanks so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's State of the Bay for this week. 
We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 for a discussion about San Francisco's government. We'll talk about what's working, what's not, and what might change to address some of the problems our city is facing. We'll be devoting the entire hour to this discussion, so email us now with your thoughts and questions. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, you can visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan. And D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night and thanks for listening.